Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This radio program is a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. And on today's edition of The Word for Today, Pastor Chuck continues with the Levitical priesthood as we pick up in Ezra, chapter 2, verse 1. And now with today's message, here's Pastor Chuck. In chapter 2, it gives you uh, the names of the people and the families that came and the numbers that came with them. Beginning in, or in verse 36 to 39, you have the priests that returned. And then beginning with verse 40, the Levites that returned. And then Solomon's servants that returned. Now in verse 61, there were some of the Levites that were returning who could not find their names in the register. Among those that were reckoned by genealogy, they they just couldn't find their names there. That is, they could not accurately trace their family history. They could not trace themselves back to the tribe of Levi. Therefore, they were as polluted and they were put out of the priesthood. Uh, They were not allowed to minister or to function as a priest or to receive the offerings, the tithes, or the uh, dues that were given to the priest in those days because they could not prove their pedigree. They couldn't trace their names in the records. And they were kept out of the priesthood until such a time as they could find a priest with the Urim and the Thummim in order that they might inquire of the Lord and and determine if these men really belong to the priesthood or not. Now, the Urim and the Thummim uh, are this uh, thing that the priest, the high priest, wore upon his chest, and the words mean lights and perfections. Just what they were, we really don't know. But they would use the Urim and the Thummim to inquire of the will of God. Now, the common theory is that it was a little pouch with a black stone and a white stone. And they would ask a question, and the priest would say, Lord, give us a perfect lot, you know, and he would reach in to the little bag and pull out a stone. If it was the black stone, then the answer was no. If it was the white stone, the answer was yes. And they used this method to ascertain the will of God uh, in certain things. Keep asking questions, keep pulling out the stones, and uh, if you pulled out the white stone, then answer yes. If you pulled out the black stone, the answer no. So this is what some have theorized the Urim and the Thummim to be. Just what it was, we don't know. It was a method by which the high priest received God's answer for the people and God's directions for the people. It was some type of device by which divine guidance was given to the people. Now, though we don't know exactly what it was, I do know exactly what it wasn't. It wasn't a pair of glasses that Joseph Smith found with the 12 golden tablets 
that when he put them on, he could magically decipher the hieroglyphics by putting on these glasses, which he said were the Urim and the Thummim. That is not so. During the time of Moses, they didn't even know how to make glass. It wasn't a magic pair of spectacles to read the hieroglyphics on the golden tablets. But as I say, what it was, I don't know. I do know what it wasn't. So there were about 50,000 who returned at this first uh, repatriation under uh, Cyrus. And going back to build the temple, plus they had 736 horses and 245 mules and 435 camels and all. And some of the chief fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, they offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. And they gave after their ability under the treasure of the work three score and 1,000 drams, or uh, 61,000 drams of gold, 5,000 pound of silver, and 100 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, and some of the people, and all the singers and the porters and the Nethanims that dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So they returned and they took up an offering. Some of the wealthier families and all gave as was their ability for the rebuilding of the temple there in Jerusalem. And when the seventh month was come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem, and then stood up Joshua, the son of Josedach, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and his brethren, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon its bases, for fear was upon them because of the people whose countries they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, Zerubbabel was more or less the political leader of the people who returned. Uh, Zerubbabel was a grandson to the one king of Israel, Jehoiachim. And so had they followed the monarchy, he would have been the king, but he didn't assume the position of a monarch, but he was the leader of the people in a political sense, whereas Joshua the priest was the leader of the people in a spiritual sense. Joshua was the priest leading them in spiritual things. Zerubbabel became more or less a governor over this remnant of people that returned. However, he was of the royal line of David and could have assumed the position of the king. However, the monarchy had ended and is not to be picked up again until Jesus Christ comes and he will sit upon the throne of David and God's promise to David that there shall not cease one from his family sitting upon the throne forever will be fulfilled when Jesus comes again and establishes God's eternal kingdom upon the earth. And so, if you will, at this point next week, read the book of Zechariah. You will find where Zerubbabel and Joshua fit into the picture. 
They were the instruments that God used in, in bringing the people back and in encouraging the people. These two men were vital instruments of God, and you'll find more record concerning them there in the prophecies of Zechariah and also of this particular period of the building of the temple. You'll find uh, Haggai has a lot to say about this. So this week, as extracurricular reading, you might want to go to Haggai and Zechariah because it fits right into this general period. So <laughs> they gathered together and they started offering sacrifices to the Lord even before the temple was rebuilt. They cleared off the area of the altar. They began to offer the morning and evening sacrifices because actually there was a lot of hostility from the people around about them. And, and they were living in real fear. And so they were really seeking God's protection and started offering sacrifices both uh, morning and evening. Now they kept the Feast of the Tabernacles, which of course is in October. They were there, it said in the ninth month they came back. So they started keeping again the Feast of the Tabernacles, the 10th month. They offered the daily burnt offerings uh, according to the number that was required and so forth and uh, the special offerings of the feast and all. And everyone that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. It is interesting how that all the time the mention of giving to God is always mentioned in a free will, willingly. Pressure is never right when it comes to giving to God. You should never give out of constraint Paul said, but as every man hath purposed in his own heart, so let him give. And so it is a shame that the church has adopted pressure tactics in trying to get pledges out of people or get offerings out of people or get support for God's work. And there are various types of pressure tactics that are used. There's a lot of weeping and wailing which is a pressure tactic to get your sympathy so that you'll send your money in. And uh, there's a lot of exuberance and hilarity and all, and, and push, push, push. But uh, it should never be, because so often if I give, actually if, if I give in order that I might be seen of men to give, if I'm giving in a public service because everyone uh, who is going to give so much is going to stand up, you know, and then you get your public recognition. Then after I give it, I feel bad. I think, oh my, I really didn't want to give that much and I can't afford that and all. And, and you begin to feel bad and, and, and then you begin to resent what you gave to God. That's terrible. God doesn't want anybody griping over what they've given to him. And thus, your giving should always be willingly a free will offering unto the Lord. And, and that should, that's, that's really the whole rule of giving to God. Freely, of your own heart, not by pressure, not by constraint, not by someone begging or pushing, but you're just determining in your heart, I want to give this to God, and, and then doing it without any fanfare or anything else. Just, hey, Lord, I love you, and I want to just give this to you, and Lord... I just thank you for the opportunity of giving and, and give freely unto God. And always through the Old Testament, it's, it's this 
emphasized. And of course, the New Testament is declared not by constraint, not by force, but willingly let everybody lay aside that which is purposed in his own heart. So the people gave in order that they might start building the temple. And they gave money to the masons, the carpenters, and they hired actually men to go up to Tyre and Sidon and to bring down some of the cedar timbers in order that they might start rebuilding. Even as Solomon had brought the timbers from Tyre and Sidon for the building of the first temple uh, down to Joppa, uh, so now they are bringing more of those timbers out of the area of Lebanon to rebuild the temple. And the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of the brethren and the priests and all they that were come out of captivity to Jerusalem and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Joshua with his sons and his brothers, and they set forward the workmen in the house of God. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with their cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and in giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And so you can get a mental picture of this scene. They came back to Jerusalem, which had been lying there desolate for 70 years. So it just had become overgrown. Uh, some of the men that came back actually had seen Jerusalem before its destruction. They had seen the original temple, some of the very old men. But most of them had never seen Jerusalem before, only they came back to a city of rubble. The older men no doubt directed them to the place where Solomon's temple had been built. They cleared away the rubble and they, they laid the foundation stones once more. And they were so thrilled that the foundation stones were laid that they had a, a big ceremony, offering offerings unto God, the priest blowing on their trumpets, others sounding with their cymbals, and there were 200 singers, and so they had no doubt several choirs, and one would sing, and then another, praises unto the Lord, as, as they were praising God, and as the choirs were singing, the people were there worshiping God, and, and just so thankful that a center of worship was being created once again, where they could gather before God and offer their offerings unto Him. But as they were singing and praising the Lord, some of these old men who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple, the beauty and the glory of that temple, when they saw the foundations and, and they realized, hey, you know, we're putting this thing together nickel and dime, and, and that one of Solomon's was so glorious, these old men began to weep. The younger fellows were all excited. We're going to have a temple again. But the older fellows, remembering the glory that was past, the glory that was lost, they wept. And so you have half of them, or not half of them, you have a bunch of them weeping, some of them yelling, and you couldn't tell the difference in the noise, whether or not they were weeping or, or uh, 
praising and all as their noise mingled together. But they made such a racket that it was heard afar off. And when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity had built the or started to build the temple of the Lord unto the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers, and they said, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esharhaddon, the king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You don't have anything to do with us to build a house unto our God, but we ourselves will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Now, when the northern kingdom was destroyed by Assyria, the Assyrian king took the people of the northern kingdom, Israel, and scattered them throughout the world, and they had brought other people that they had conquered and settled them in the land of the northern kingdom. It became known as Samaria, for that was the capital city. And the people ultimately came, became known as the Samaritans. Now, when they came into the land, the wild animals began to turn against the people, and many of them were devoured, and they came to the king, and they said, hey, we can't get along with the gods of the land. The animals are turning against us, so send us some priests that they may teach us how to worship in order that uh, we might worship these gods of, of the land so that these wild animals won't be eating our kids and all. So they king of Assyria found some priests and they brought them to these people who the priests taught them the worship of God. And it said, so they feared Jehovah, but they worshiped their own gods. In other words, he was just made a, a part of their whole total worship program. But it wasn't a true worship of Jehovah, nor were they truly descendants of Abraham or Israel. So they did, however, as a part of their total worship, worship Jehovah, even as they were taught. They, they did have the sacrifices. They did offer the sacrifices and all because the priest taught them the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, and these things. So they did do that. And so when these fellows came and were going to build their temple, they said, hey, we'd like to help you because we worship your God too. But they worship God as an admixture with a lot of other gods. And so Zerubbabel and Joshua and the chief men decided that they didn't want their help. Now, it would be great if the church would maintain that same attitude today. We don't need the help of the world in doing the work of God. But not all churches see it that way. And many are trying to conscript Satan to come help them in their building programs or whatever. But God doesn't need any help in accomplishing his program, especially from those who are not true servants of God. And I feel that it is wrong to go to worldly people to try to conscript aid for the work of God. 
they refused to accept their help. Now, these are the same people that in the time of Christ were called the Samaritans. And the Jews would not have any dealings even after they returned, they, they would not have any dealings. 400 years later, when, when Christ came, they still would not have any dealings with the Samaritans. And you remember when Jesus met the woman of Samaria at the well and said, would you give me a drink of water? She said, how come you're asking me for a drink? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. The Jews don't have dealings with the Samaritans. It is true. The Jews would usually... Uh, when they were coming to the feast from Galilee, go clear on down to the Jordan River and come all the way along the Jordan River and then come up from Jericho rather than take the shorter route directly through Samaria because they just didn't like to be around the Samaritans. There was a lot of bad blood between the two. Now, the Holy Spirit came upon the church and in one of the early persecutions, the church was sort of scattered. And Jesus had said to his disciples, when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. We'll return with more of our verse-by-verse -verse Bible study in the book of Ezra on our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck continues to teach through the Bible. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Ezra 2 through 4 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, be sure to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, that's the wordfortoday.org. For those of you wishing to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today. P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure to join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse -verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Now may the Lord be with you, and may you just experience more and more the grace and the fullness of our Lord as you yield your lives to Him. And may you not come short in any spiritual gift. May you abound in all things in Christ Jesus. The Lord be with you.
This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. It is my great pleasure to present Pastor Chuck's commentary on the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles is an open-ended book. Jesus continues even to the present day to work in the lives of people throughout the world through those who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. This book also includes a special foreword written by Pastor John Corson. We studied the book of Acts, but we never saw the book of Acts. But we were seeing the moving of the Holy Spirit. Calvary Chapel family, may you always be known as a people who pray in Jesus' name, that it would be Jesus Christ, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. May the Jesus movement continue on. To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, The Acts Commentary, please call the word for today at 1-800-272-9673 or visit us online to read a sneak preview of the book by visiting thewordfortoday.org.